Let me see you put them up. Reach the skies, touch the stars up above, cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of ITM, and in this interview, I'm sitting down with a former member of Scientology Church who worked at the Sea Organization for nearly 15 years, and he breaks down the inside scoop of how he viewed Scientology and what the church did. A lot of this stuff is almost unreal to believe, but I'll let him give you the story of what happened with his experience while he was with Scientology. So I got a call from a few entrepreneurs, good friends of mine. They said, Pat, what do you think about Scientology? And I said, listen. I think the best way to answer the question of what I think about Scientology, and I have my own opinions about it, I have a lot of friends who are Scientologists, and I've worked with many in the business who are Scientologists, I said, let me reach out and find out who we can interview that can tell you all about Scientology, and we can go through questions. So we contacted David Miscavige, he's the one that pretty much runs Scientology, and we realized the last time he did an interview apparently was 24 years ago with Ted uh, Koppel. Ted Koppel. And so then after that, our team did a little research. We came up with the name that we found, Mark Headley. We contacted him. Now, this may not necessarily be the favorite person that Scientologists would want me to interview because it would be a lot different if we did David. But if we can't get David, we wanted to get somebody. We got Mark here. And for, for some of you to know who Mark is, Mark worked with the church for 15 years from 1990 up until 2005, four years after L. Ron Hubbard died. He was there for 15 years, the INT base, right? The international base, which is... It's the, it's the facility that controls and runs Scientology internationally. Internationally. And you guys, you guys got roughly, what, 5,000 people that work for the Church of Scientology, give or take? Yeah, and at that facility, there was about... Uh, it varied, but there was about maybe five, six, seven hundred 700 people at that one facility in California. Got it. And he also wrote a book called Blown for Good, which we'll talk about the book, which... Blown for good, he'll tell you what blow means. Blow means when you step away from the church because he stepped away from the church and some ugly things happened to him. He's going to share some of that experience. And aside from that, you were also in a recent Emmy award-winning series called Scientology with uh, Leah Remeni, The Aftermath, right? There's now going into three seasons. You've been interviewed on that multiple times yeah. uh, yourself. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit. But with that being said, thanks for coming on to Value Absolutely. I am looking forward to the sit-down. So before we get into it and get a little bit about your experience on uh, you know, your background, I know your mother was a Scientologist in 1979, she joined the church, you were six or seven years old at the time, and then afterwards, all you know is Scientology until you started working at 16 till 31. But what is Scientology to you? When you think about the word Scientology, what does it mean? Now when I think- Then. Oh, then? then? Yeah. I just knew it as a, like a, a belief system. L. Ron Hubbard has written thousands and thousands of policy letters and bulletins. And the policy letters have to do with how you uh, work in an organization and how, and they also apply to business, Scientology businesses. And then the bulletins have to do with the, like the teachings of Scientology and the, the auditing, the counseling they do in Scientology and the courses and that sort of thing. Yep. So I went to a Scientology school when I was little. Um, I did Scientology courses at the Scientology Center at night, and that's sort of all I knew as a kid was that's how we that's how we did things. So you just uh, they have certain ways of going about living, and and uh, that's all I knew as a kid. So when I was recruited to work for the Sea Organization, it's almost expected when you're a kid in Scientology 
that the the best thing you could possibly do is join the sea organization because of because that's the most dedicated group of Scientologists. Got it. They dedicate a billion years. They sign you actually sign a contract, a billion year contract when you join the sea organization. Meaning meaning what? Meaning if you, you live a, a billion years for it, the rest of your life you're with them. Yeah, like when you die you need to come back the next lifetime to work for them again. In the sea organization when sometimes when people die they actually have an in memoriam notice that goes out and it says at the end uh, this person is granted a 21 year leave of absence and we expect to see him back you you're interesting you're, yeah. so 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 let me ask you did you yourself your mother was one until you joined so for your mother was a scientologist 11 years from 79 to 90 until you joined and started working in the int base did you look at scientology as a religion or was it more a uh, secret society type of a thing, like a Freemasons? Was it more like a personal development, Tony Robbins type of esque group that had been around longer than he had been around? And it's kind of like the Earl Nightingale type of, you know, I'm learning how to process issues, how to work better. How did you view it when you were in it? Not today, how did you view yeah. it when you were in it? Well, they kind of drilled into us the whole religion angle. Like, we're a religion, we believe in. These are our religious beliefs. So when I was there, I would say I viewed it as a religion. But at the same time, when you're at the international headquarters, there's crazy shit going on you all over the place. So when you see that stuff, it's, there's a lot of mental gymnastics happening to justify we're doing this in the name of religion. Like, like this guy, David Miscavige, is, is beating people. You actually witnessed them. Absolutely, you? absolutely. When you say beating people, what do you, what do you punching with your fist into the face, uh, shoving, kicking, punching, uh, kicking, throwing people across tables Who against walls. Who are the walls. people that this is happening to? Most of the people that he would give beatdowns to were international executives. So the people that were in charge of running Scientology. They were the most beat people at that property. These so, are influential names. These are influential figures within the church. Yeah, if any Scientologist knew that the people of the people that he was beating, they would know all. They would all know their names, like Mark Ingber, Mark Yeager, Guillaume Lesev, Heber Jens, any of the people, Mike Rinder. Um, these people that he would give a beat down to were well known executives in Scientology and they were they're also in the C organization so the pe the people that are fighting and the people that are beating each other up are the top executives of Scientology so it's not it wouldn't be a public member like a uh, a person who goes into an org in Cincinnati that person wouldn't see or be part of it's any behind the scenes. it's all behind the curtain did, did it ever happen to you did you on two occasions David Miscavige struck me and one of the last uh, occasions was in the 2000s. It was shortly before I left. And uh, he punched me and he, he basically, I had glasses at the time. He punched me so hard in the face that my glasses broke. And, um, and I went up against a cabinet and uh, like, a, like kind of like a desk unit. And um, when I, I didn't fall down or anything, but when I kind of regained myself, yeah. he saw that I was coming for him. And he's not a big guy. He usually has an entourage with him, though. And as soon as he saw the look in my eyes, these two guys grabbed me and they just took me out of the building. And as I was being let out of the building, he said, he said, did you see that? That guy was going to hit me. 
And I said, you bet. As I, they were leading me out, I he said, said that. Yeah, he said, did you see that? That guy was going to hit me. Now, let me ask you this. Not, not to play the devil's advocate, but how many other people have come out saying what you're saying about David actually hitting people? At least 20 or 30 other people. Tw- 20 other people have come out saying this has happened. Absolutely. So let me ask you, if that is the case, how come he's still running the entire thing? Because they've got a group of 50 people there that they write affidavits for the people. Right. They give them to them. Right. And they sign them. Yeah, but it, so, it, it, so he's got 50 people against the 30 people that say that never happened. He never touched a soul. Um, David Miscavige never even yelled at anybody. Once he found a little birdie outside in the grass and he picked him up and nursed him back to life. I mean, you, the affidavits that these people are writing, they're like they're like pure fiction. But they've got they could and they and if they wanted to, they could have 200 of those affidavits. Has has there ever been a deep investigation into the church or no? Absolutely. Like deep I, deep investigation. Absolutely. I've seen government drone footage of the international headquarters that the FBI showed me on a laptop. And what's been the court ruling afterwards? There was it, it was it was dropped. So but you see how that so, so I'm not trying to defend the Scientologists. I'm not trying to defend the other side. I'm just trying to get a argument on both sides to say Okay, if that's really happening, why, why hasn't the court would, because if the court, so somebody may process it and say, well, the court probably didn't because David paid him off. Well, no, I can tell you exactly how they tell get Tell me out. why. Tell because me how. whoever has the best lawyers and whoever spends the most money on their legal team is the one who wins the case. And Scientology, in the cases that have been brought against them, yeah. have, like myself and my wife sued Scientology. And Scientology spent tens of millions of dollars fighting that case. Your case. My case. Just your case. Just my case. Scientology has an unlimited legal and private investigator and dirty tricks budget that they can pull from. They have, they have an entire spy wing in Los Angeles. In the 1970s, there was a group called the Guardian's Office, and that's the, that was the spy wing of Scientology. They perpetrated the largest infiltration into the United States government in its history. You can Google this. Guardian's office, FBI, it'll show up. I think it was 11 of Scientology top officials were jailed, had jail time based on this whole thing. Mm -hmm. The FBI conducted a raid of several Scientology facilities. I think it was in 1977. And in that raid, they found documents that exonerated people that had Scientology had sued, and they found all this evidence about how Scientology had basically framed these people, all sorts of dirty tricks. Okay, that organization is called the Office of Special Affairs today, and it's in Hollywood. It's on 6331 Hollywood Boulevard. And that organization is the one that hires the lawyers, they hire private investigators. Is to, it part of the church? It's or? absolutely. It's okay. the people that work in the Office of Special Affairs are C organization members. One thing you gotta know about Scientology is that L. Ron Hubbard, if he wrote anything, that's, it's, it's in stone. It can never be changed. And L. Ron Hubbard wrote a policy that says when somebody leaves Scientology and if they attack Scientology or they speak badly about Scientology, the policy is to destroy them utterly. Is that public to the members? No. That's public that's to the 5,000 that poli- work there? Or that's it- an, it's an internal policy. Who knows? Who has read that? The 5,000 people that work there? 
most of them probably have, and they um, know about it. This is not a this is not a uh, this is a common thing. People would know it if they leave. You have to destroy them. Even to a point, there's a book. It's called the Ethics Book, and yeah. that is a book that any Scientologist can read. Yeah. Anybody can read it, yeah. even if you're not a Scientologist. Yeah. And in there, it has crimes and high crimes and misdemeanors, mm-hmm. and and in that, it talks about. If you associate with a suppressive person, if you help a suppressive person, if you uh, give a suppressive person a platform to speak out, these are high crimes. So either way, this group, the Office of Special Affairs, one of their sole purposes is to destroy critics of Scientology. That's all they do. They actually have graphs on their wall in their desk unit of how many... Scientologists, they've cut connections from these suppressive persons. Some may say, well, that's common in other religions as well, right? Like I was part of a group, then I watched the religion and what happened in front of my eyes when a couple of the people stepped away from the church. Their families turned against those two people. It was very ugly when that happened. I'm like, wow, that was pretty ugly. And they used to be lifted up and all this other, but just because something happened. Yeah, there's one thing in Scientology, it's called disconnection. Mm -hmm. In other, they have different words for it in other religions. Yep. Okay, that's one thing. So I leave, and you don't want to talk to anymore. Okay, that's fine. Okay. But when you call child services to try and get my kids taken away, or you have private investigators camped outside my house. Are you or, saying that from somebody else, or that happened to you? No, that happened to me. They, they called child services to take your kids away. A child services got an anonymous tip that our kids were in danger. And child services showed up to our house. When we were working with the FBI in the investigation, we, were get, we gave all the information over of this child services thing to the FBI. Without saying it, they said, yeah, they did that. So, so, that, so, that, so that's what I'm saying. You can say, oh, well, other religions. I don't know how many other I'll religions have millions and millions of dollars oh, dedicated, dedicated to spending on private investigators to follow former members. Okay, there were, there I was, don't know the exact dollar well, amount. I'll tell you this. There yep. was an individual who worked at the international headquarters, and he left in the 1980s. David Miscavige, and this is documented. This has been reported on by uh, the Tampa Bay Times. Two private investigators were paid by David Miscavige, and they reported to David Miscavige. They watched this former Scientologist who worked at the Ant Base for 25 years two private investigators. That was their whole life. They were paid millions and just two guys were paid millions and millions of dollars to watch one single ex-Scientologist. That's one. How important was that one? He was the guy that David Miscavige, they have these levels in Scientology. Yeah. They have OT levels, mm-hmm. operating Phaeton levels, and you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get through how these many, levels. How many levels? I've seen 15 levels, I've seen 10 levels. How many levels they are there? They have eight levels. Okay. Okay. This guy that left, David Miscavige, thought he took nine and ten with him because they don't have a nine and ten. Like they have, L. Ron Hubbard wrote a chart that goes from OT1 to OT15, mm-hmm. but OT. That's, that's what I've seen, the OT1 yeah. to OT15. Yeah, but L. Ron Hubbard only finished up to eight before he died. He himself. He himself only wrote. Truth revealed is that's number right. eight. Yeah. He only wrote up to eight. So Got it. They've been telling Scientologists that these 9 through 15 exist, but they don't. That's, a, that's, a, that's fiction. But when this guy, this guy that left, David Miscavige thinks, oh, I think he took 9 and 10 with him. Because he worked, the guy that left worked with Al Ron Hubbard. 
So this is not a regular guy that left that they spent $25 million on. This is a pretty no. influential guy that they left. Okay, so let, let but me... But either way, yeah, so you, you say it's like other religions. Well, I worked there for 15 years, yeah, but and I've, is, seen other, I've seen other things. And, and don't get me wrong. Yeah. I've seen other horrible stuff that happens in other cults and other religions. Um, but from working there for 15 years, I can tell you that... Scientology, and Scientology has been around since the 50s. Mm -hmm. Scientology has spent 60 to 70 years perfecting this spy ops, this black, black ops type of engagement against former members. So there might be other places that do it. Scientology's spy operations are not low level. They, they know how to do stuff. Well, I mean, if you think about it, Enron. Enron is a very big company, multi, multi-billion dollar company. They have some of the best lawyers, better lawyers than anybody else had at that time. Yeah. They still were taken down. I mean, you can sure. go through Barry Stearns. They're, these are $50 billion empires, yeah. bigger than Scientology, bigger than a lot of these. These are massive empires. And if the proper investigation is done, they still go down. How come that hasn't happened to Scientology? And I know Scientology has, tw give or take, twenty to 30,000 members. I yeah. don't know the exact numbers. You would know better than I would. That's about accurate. That's accurate. Twenty to 30,000 members. And, you know, the biggest name is probably Tom Cruise. And you have Travolta. I know in the past, Seinfeld dabbled with it a little bit, but he says, I was never part of it. I just took a few courses. Brad Pitt used to be there when he used to date a girl who was a big Scientologist. You know, he used to dabble with it a little bit. You have some other names. Katie Holmes, all these girls that were with Tom Cruise, I used to be a part of it. One of Tom Cruise's ex-wife that introduced him to Scientology, she left. Mimi Rogers. She, yeah, she used to be Scientology. And Tom Cruise is a part of it. Greta Van uh, Susteren. Uh, uh, Susteren is a Scientologist herself, and she works for Fox News. You know, I, I don't know about John Travolta. I mean, aside from John Travolta's style, I dressed like John Travolta from Saturday Night Fever when I was in the Army. He's got great taste. He knows how to <laughs> dance. But I don't know if I would put John Travolta as a genius. I don't know if I would put him in that category. He's not their best spokesperson. I would tell you Tom comes across as a very smart guy to me. Tom mm -hmm. does. When I saw Tom's interview with Matt Lauer, and he's going back and forth, may have, you know, as some people said it hurt his career, but he made the comeback. That interview, when you listen to him, there's parts of it where it's kind of like, you know, this guy's making sense, and Matt, he's pushing Matt back. They're going back and forth. And Greta's not a dummy. Greta's a smart mm -hmm. person. So if it's what you say it is, and, and, and you're not the only person that's saying this, why have so many smart, intelligent people have been turned on to this? Why is that? Is it just because of the power and the fame, or is it because the content has actually changed our lives? I explain it like this. Let's say you have a relationship problem. Like you just can't get into relationships. Okay. And you, some of the Scientologists says, hey, we have a course we can help you with relationships. Sure. I already know as a Scientologist, that is, and they call this a ruin, something that you have in your life that you can't figure out and you can't solve it. And they say, we have a course that'll help you with that exact thing. And then you, it's 50 bucks, 100 bucks. You do that course. When you do that course, you find out there's actually another 10 things that are messed up with your life that you didn't even know were messed up. You just wanted to sort out getting a girlfriend. Okay, well now they sell you another $5,000 worth of courses to handle those 10 problems that you figured out. Okay, fast forward 15 years later, your third divorce. You spent a half a million dollars and you've been chasing this relationship thing that then turned into all this other stuff. And it doesn't matter what your ruin is. Scientology has a course that'll handle that ruin. If you're a person that is not good at communicating, they have a communications course. 
if you can't get along with your family. They have a course called How to Get Along with Others. You can do that course. They've isolated, and this is the genius of L. Ron Hubbard. He isolated all these different areas of life that people have problems with, and they made these little $50 courses. That's the cheese. Once they get you in the trap, then it just goes like that forever. All the way up to OT8, it's always a bait and switch. All these things, I say, oh, you've got these, a- these aliens attached so to you. So it's creating a, a imaginary problems to have a solution for the imaginary problem, which is called the Hegelian dialectic, which is... Exactly. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I am, but this is the best part of it. It's like a house of cards, this whole thing. Right. But you build it. Right. So you're it's the one. It's an old tactic. I mean, it's they very. They get you in. Right. You build the house of cards yourself, and you're navigating all these problems that you have now essentially sure. put in. Wrote, you've put in your own roadblocks in front of you, and they're saying, "Oh, this is how we can get you through that roadblock." And that's essentially what happens. Now, I've talked to Scientologists that have gone all the way up to OT8, mm-hmm. and they're like, "Yeah, I, I got nothing." Like, I, I, if I could have rewind and got rid of all that, yep. I'd be right where I am right now. You learn a lot of things in Scientology about yourself, but most of those things are prompted for you to say. So they are trying to get your money. That's the bottom line. They're trying to get your money. And they're also trying to get you to get other people in so they can get the, the, those people's money. And so, now here's another thing. And not a lot of poor Scientologists. If you know people who are in Scientology, most of those people that you know have money because they don't need poor people. They don't need people that don't have money because there's like, what are they going to do? They're going to do that little $50 course and then what? That's it. Okay. That's not a, that's not a good uh, value for them to get in those sort of, sort of people. And L. Ron Hubbard, in, I think it was in the 60s or the 70s, he actually wrote this program. I think it was called Project Celebrity. And he made a list of all the people that he wanted in Scientology and said, go, go get them. And they've been doing that ever since. They get one Scientology celebrity in, and then he gets one or two other ones in, and then that one gets one or two other ones in. And so even though they only have t- 20, 30,000 people in Scientology, yeah, 5,000 of those are giving them a few million bucks a year. They don't pay any, like, they don't pay these 5,000 people that work there. They're not making any money. When you worked there, what were you making when you worked there for 15 years? I was getting, if you got paid, it was 50 bucks, but then taxes got taken out, and it was about 46 bucks, 24 cents a week. I got, when I left- Wait, 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 how much? $46 and 26 cents a week, or 24 cents a week, I can't remember, FICA, SDI, whatever they took out, but this is the thing. I was working 120 hours a week, every week. That was, the, the schedule was about 110 hours a week, but we worked, sometimes we pulled all-nighters, sometimes we pulled multiple all-nighters, but either way, it was about, it averaged out about between 110, 120 hours a week that we worked. 52 weeks Where a year. Where are you sleeping? You're sleeping at the place. Now, at the headquarters, they actually live right next to where they work, but at the time when I lived there, we, I lived just down the street from this compound. So you didn't live at the compound? I didn't live at the compound. I was restricted to the property, not allowed to leave the property, which was probably for a year out of those 15 years I slept under my desk or in a closet or something like that. Oh, so you were not confined to have to live on the property. You did live off the property. I did. And so you had a car, you could go around, you can do your things. 
I had a motorcycle, but most of the time I just walked back and forth. Okay. Because you hear some stories about, you know, you're confined, you cannot leave, you have to yeah, yeah. watch the only TV that they're playing over there, and they edit the videos and all this other stuff. Absolutely. But you actually lived off of campus. But, like, a block away. Like so if I'm a block down away, the street. well, let me ask you, can I date another girl? Can I go <laughs> no, no, can, no. Uh, go to a bar? Can I have a girl come over no, my when place? No, when I, you get off work, the bars are already closed. They've already had last call by the time you get off. I know some good bars. I mean, if you're in L.A., I, I <laughs> know the in, right bars. Not in Gilman Hot Springs, California. <laughs> Listen, but any, here you go. any marketplace that can sell alcohol, they make the money. But go ahead. Yeah. When I left in 2005, from 1990 to 2005, yeah. I got my Social Security statement. It said for the entire 15 years that I worked there, I made a total of $29,000 for 15 years of 120 hours a week. I think I averaged it out one day between the all-nighters and all that stuff. I think it was about 30 cents an hour, 30, 35 cents an hour, which is less than slave labor in China. People that make iPhones in China are making more money than Sea members. And they get Sundays off. We didn't get Sundays off. We had to work seven days a week. You said 20, how many thousand dollars in 15 years? 29,000 $29, in 15 years. Do you have this to show it? Absolutely, you? I'll send it to you. You, you have, you have? I have it, yeah. Okay, so you made $29,000 in I made, I made more money in the first three or four months after I left in 2005. I made more money in that few months than I made in 15 years working for Sunday. But how is that, so, so again. Let so me, let here's me. the thing. They're making, getting all this money from people. Yep. They're not paying anybody anything. Yep. And so it's basically a cash machine. They have, they're buying properties because they can't stockpile the money as a nonprofit. I don't know all the legalities of it, but I don't think you're allowed to hoard the money. You've got to spend it. And so they buy real estate with that money. And then they renovate that real estate and then they get that property designated historical property and then so they're making money on real estate they're making money on donations and really as far as i can tell the only thing that they spend money on is legal private investigators and dirty tricks that's like their that's one of their biggest budget expenses is messing with former members to not have them tell what happened in scientology and here's the reason People say that right now Scientology's got about $3 billion, and a lot of that is soft assets. Um, if you had $3 billion, how much would you spend to keep it? $500 million on legal? That's nothing. I'd spend it to keep the $3 yeah, billion. But how many people out there like you can say that you worked 120 hours a week for many years for $29,000, you know, 30 cents an hour? How many people also can say what you just said? that you know of, that are out, that, that have left the At church? At least 100. At least 100. Yeah. So here's my question. How can an organization do that, period? Under the guise of religion. Because when you- Under the guise of religion, you can yeah. do that with your Absolutely. congregation? Yeah. You turn this whole place into a religion, you just lock the door, keep these guys here all night long. Because- Wait a minute, that's a law? That's a law? Well, no. The state or the federal government is not allowed to interfere with a religion. Separation of church and state. That's right. Okay. You can't, a judge can't say, you can't do it that way because the religious doctrines say this is how we do it. So even, even today, a court order was issued in a case, like a ruling was I issued in a couple that they basically gave about a million bucks to Scientology and they were ripped off. They donated for things that other people were also donating. So like they said, oh, we're gonna put a star on top of this building in Clearwater called the Superpower Building. Well, they- It's literally called that. It's 
There's a building in Clearwater, Florida called the Superpower Building. Does it say it on the, does it say? Absolutely, they, they, they call it the Superpower Building. It's got a giant, it's actually a pretty cool name. Superpower building. If I go in there, am I going to have superpowers? Is it just like no. X-Men and people like that are in there? No, but you know the crazy thing is that when you leave Scientology and you speak out about it, you're called a suppressive person. And any Scientologist that runs into you, they have to run away. They so can't even look at you. you're a suppressive person. I'm a suppressive person. So what am I interviewing you? You're called a PTS, a potential trouble source, because you're connected to a suppressive person. But here's the thing I I'm wanted to PTS, tell you. PTS, Mario. He, you are PTS. <laughs> Just by being connected to me right now, you're a PTS. Now, what if I would have interviewed David Miscavige? Would I still be a PTS or no? Well, no, you're connected to me now. That's it. We're locked. I'm a PTS for life. Well, unless you disconnect from me. You have to send me a formal letter saying, I can't associate with you anymore because you've committed suppressive acts. And then maybe, depending on how much money you give them, they can take you off the, the list of being a PTS. But here's my, this is my point about the superpowers. If I walk into... A grocery store and there's 10 Scientologists there they're gonna run out of the grocery store they can't even look at me or be near me okay even if they've got super they've done superpower so I I, I table the question who's really got the superpowers <laughs> I can scatter them like roaches anyway do you, do you ever run into these guys I've, oh I've run into people and they literally will turn their backs and walk away they can't even look at me they cannot even look at me because I'm a suppressive person if, and in Scientology is a snitch culture. So if there's another Scientologist in the egg aisle and I'm in the cereal aisle with the goody-goody two-shoes Scientologist, that other person, if they, if, I, if they talk to me, that other person will write a report and say, hey, I saw Joe Blow talking to Mark Headley. And then that person will get pulled in and say, what the hell? Why were you talking to Mark Headley? In our, in our industry, there's a little bit of that with me as well, but that's a whole different topic. But go ahead. Okay, so... So you were saying that this, this superpower building that we have in Florida, right? Yeah, okay. so they were so donating. These, this couple was donating. A million dollars? Yeah, well, they donated different amounts for different things, but right. they said, we're going to put this cross on top of this building. Well, they told another 50 people that they were paying for the cross on the building. So they basically just oversold the same thing to get money from people. Got it. Anyway, long story short, a judge ruled today that if you sign an agreement with Scientology that says you're going to be, a, it's, I think they call it a parishioner agreement or some sort of agreement to participate in Scientology. When you sign that, it says in there that you will be subjected to Scientology's arbitration rules. So if you want your money back, you have to do it the Scientology way. And in Scientology, it's a kangaroo court. You're a suppressive person now. You want your money back? Screw you. That's it. End of story. You're not getting your money back. And, and your, your uh, case doesn't withstand in the court. Like, you go in there and say, hey. Our case was a separate thing. In our case, we had, we had different causes of action in our case. And because the FBI was investigating Scientology for human trafficking, our lawyers put all the eggs in the human trafficking basket, which was one of our causes of action. And they got rid of all the other causes of action, physical assault and false imprisonment and whatever the other causes of action were and the FBI, the FBI who knows exactly what happened but that case fizzled and then our case was dismissed because there wasn't human trafficking happening there. So who has won against them so far? Well, they've settled a lot of cases and I think I'm, I'd have to, I, this would have to be verified but I'm almost positive that any case that has actually gone to trial, Scientology's lost. 
So if it goes to trial, they so lose. Give me one example. Like, what's, what's gone to trial? Um, there was a case a invo- big one. involving a guy named Larry Wallersheim, and he sued the church for $30 million. And they fought it for years and years and years. And they actually, and I was there in the church when they were fighting this case, and they had this thing, this slogan, not one thin dime for Wallersheim. And they fought it, and they fought it, and they fought it. And the day it was going to trial, um, the Scientologist gave him a check for $30 million. They gave him, and is they this public, is this, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's on public yeah, information? Yeah, he, he goes around telling everybody he got a lot of dimes. He got them. a lot of dimes for it. <laughs> so, so, okay, let's go back a little bit. I know we can, we'll, we'll come back to this again. Yeah. Why, why was L. Ron Hubbard so fascinating? What made him so, you see some of his interviews, the way he would speak, you know, and, and you know, the stories, I, I was a this, I was a physicist, I, I used to do this, I used to be in a Marine, I was a commander, you know, and then you do the research and twice he had to step down and this. But why was he so fascinating that people looked at him and say, this is a brilliant man? Why, why did that happen to him? I think he was charismatic and I think he was full of shit. So he was a good bullshitter and he would make up preposterous stories to impress people. And a lot of people bought into those stories. And like you said, he said he had this many medals and he was this and he was that and his childhood was this and he, he was a, uh, a brother of the Blackfeet Indian, all this stuff. And then when you actually, people start researching, they find out like 90% of what he said is complete bullshit. So I think he was like, um, he was like a, a, a circus barker. He was like a carnival barker. He was a, uh, he, he, he got people riled up and he got people excited and he said, this is what we're doing. And, and it was a time uh, in the 50s and the 60s when there was a, a threat of nuclear war and there were all the atomic bombs are going to go off. And so people wanted something to grab onto and they wanted something to believe in. And he was saying, we're against all that. We're going to go off and do this. And I think at that time, it was sort of, we're going to be dead and may, we should try and do something. Was that the pitch originally? I think so, yeah. And a lot of his early lectures, he talks about uh, atomic bombs and what the, gov- the, the, the whole planet could be wiped out tomorrow. And there was always, and the, that's another thing in the Sea Org, which was if we don't do the job right now, we might not get another chance. And we've got to be dedicated to the bone. We've got to be dedicated because we've got so much work to do. And, and, and if we don't do it, the whole planet's going to get wiped so out. So who did he convince to become a religion? I mean, whoever he sold the idea to that approved it. I mean, that's a, either it's brilliance or the people who represented the government that approved it to be a religion are idiots. Well, so which one is it? Well, what happened was they, Scientology in the 60s actually got a tax-exempt religious recognition. And then a lot of the money was going to Hubbard, and they lost it for that exact reason, because he was getting the money, and you can't do that. So they lost their tax exemption. And then they fought that all the way up until 1993, and the IRS granted them tax-exempt status in 1993. But what led up to that was they filed thousands and thousands of cases against individual IRS agents. They filed cases against the IRS. They were suing them everywhere and anywhere in the United States. The IRS, they were suing, Scientology was suing them. When Scientology is suing the IRS. Yes, the individual agents of the IRS. They, were, they had launched legal cases, thousands, I think it was like 2,000 something legal cases against the IRS that Scientology filed. When Scientology was about to get tax exemption, they had a billion dollar tax bill. 
because they hadn't been paying taxes since they lost their uh, right. tax exemption, yep. in, I think in the 60s or the 70s. They, had a, they owed a billion dollars. If the IRS would not have granted them tax exemption, they would have been done. In 1993, Scientology would be no more because they didn't have a billion dollars. Okay, they went and met with the commissioner of the IRS at the time in 1993, and they basically told him, if you give us tax exemption, this all goes away. All the cases will disappear tomorrow. They'll be done, gone. They got tax exemption. So it's not like... They, they bought their way into exactly. being tax exempt. Exactly, it's not like they got so tax exempt. So they paid a billion dollars to get tax exempt? No, no, they didn't pay the bill. They didn't pay the bill. They got tax exemption, and I think they settled any outstanding taxes for like $20 million, $20, $30 million. And that was it. You're good to go. Who approved that? Uh, I think the commissioner's name was Gold Fred Goldberg, I think was the commissioner of the IRS back in the 90s. This is in the 90s when this became official. So. Yeah, 19, it was uh, August 1993. And now here's the, here's the craziest thing in this. Whole... 1993, that's seven years after he died. So it didn't even happen while he was alive. Nope. And he had said that certain things in Scientology couldn't happen unless they were tax exempt. So there was pockets of money, millions and millions of dollars worth of money that were parked places that could only be unlocked if they became tax exempt. These were things that L. Ron Hubbard had dictated before he passed away. But it's, so it's not like the church down the street that's having a, a weekly Sunday service and they're doing marriages and they're doing funerals yep. and they're doing something for the public. And for that reason, we give them a break. Scientology is destroying families. They're busting up relationships. They're bankrupting people. They're putting money on people's credit cards illegally. They're doing all sorts of things that absolutely do not benefit the public, but they're getting that same benefit of not having to pay taxes. And because of that, that's how from 1993 to now, they go from owing a billion dollars to having $3 billion in assets. $3 billion is not a lot of money for somebody it, to go after them, if you really not, think about it. It's not, but they're also, they're not that big. They're just not that What's big. What's the biggest the church ever was? Is, is today the biggest it's ever been at no. 20,000? I would say in the 90s, I think in the 90s, they probably had... I'd say 100,000 people. Oh, so they've dropped off tremendously. Oh, since 1996, at the, at the international headquarters, um, they, L. Ron Hubbard wrote this policy that all statistics have to be graphed, all. And they have thousands and thousands of statistics that they keep in Scientology. Scientology is micromanaged to the nth degree. When we worked at the property, someone would come by every day and check our graph. Every single day for every single person, they'd check your graph to make sure that you had marked it for the day. That, like hourly during a day. That's efficiency. Okay. It's not really, because you spend a lot of time marking your graph and there's nothing really to put on. <laughs> anyway, but regardless, they have statistics in the in headquarters by years. And since 1996, Scientology statistics across the boards. Yeah. Membership, enrollment, new people in, uh, OT8s, OT5, all, everything across the boards down. Everything since 1996. And I think the reason that is, is the internet. So the internet is working against them right well, now? Well, yeah, because they have this policy of disconnection. And if, if, if you were in Scientology and you got kicked out and your family didn't talk to you anymore, 
That was it. We never heard from you again. So let me, let me ask you some basic questions. You know religion questions. So it's a religion. What does Scientology believe happens when you die? They believe that you come back. Reincarnation. So Absolutely. they believe in reincarnation. Yeah. Who was Scientology's God? Was there a creator? No. And you learn about, they, I mean, there's policies from L. Ron, there's writings of L. Ron Hubbard where he says that Jesus is a pedophile. I mean, they don't believe in God. They're, there's absolutely no, they say this when they try to get people in that, um, oh, no, you can be a Buddhist. Oh, you can be a Christian. Oh, you can be a Catholic. That is 100% not true. And even some of the crimes of, in Scientology are mixing practices. So being a practicing Catholic and being a Scientologist, you can't do it. It's not allowed. Um, but they believe, they teach you that you're the eighth dynamic, which is a god. So, so you could be a god. Yeah. Now, that's a very effective uh, 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 method that other churches also use, that if you get it to a certain level, you could be a god. Sure. They say you are a god. From day one, or you can be a god. No, no. There, there is a god dynamic. They have these different dynamics, which it goes from one through eight. Yeah. And the eighth dynamic is the god dynamic. What and is God to them? Like if you define God to them, and maybe it's a different definition for I God. I think they call it the creator or the, the, a force, a universal force. Like you can um, create whatever life you want to you create. You can create planets. You can, if you, so, okay, now that's a different story. Now, now we're getting yeah. a little different story. But <laughs> if you can create your own life and you're a God, maybe that's their interpretation that you can be your, your own God. So, okay, so who created everything? Is it going back to them of Dianetics, the three different concepts of Dianetics, you know, the real... You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So who, what created the planet? What created? That's hard to say because a lot of times L. Ron Hubbard goes into trillions and trillions of years ago and he talks about that there's billions and billions and billions of planets. What's the craziest so, thing you ever read that he said? Craziest um, thing. I don't know. That's, that's a lot. Give me one of them. Like something um, where, something where okay. if somebody said that's just craziness, what, what is it that you... You can only wash them. You can only wash windows with ammonia and water, and newspaper. Period. That's it. Windex is not allowed. <laughs> like stupid stuff. Every time you use a car, you have to wash it. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That one Hubbard wrote these things. Every time you use a car, you have to wash it. If you drive to the market and drive back, you got to wash your car. You can wash. You can only wash windows with ammonia and water and newspapers. That's it. You cannot use Windex. What else? Um, I don't know. That, that's what I'm saying. There's so many bizarre... Like, you can't use... You can only use one kind of shoe polish for your boots. Like, one brand. Like, w But what's the, what's the psyche behind it? What's the... What's the, that's the what's that word Hubbard said? I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's just... It's, it's whatever, whatever way the wind was blowing that day. So then, is it a lot of... Uh, uh, so it's just, <laughs> I'm telling you, it's just a bunch of bullshit. That's why it's hard for me to say... Oh, he said this one thing. But you know, this you, dude has said so much. But you I mean, know what it makes me think volumes about? Volumes of Here's bullshit. what it makes me think about. It makes me think about, you know, some of these bigger families. Like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, first time uh, uh, when he met uh, 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 Jackie Kennedy's uh, brother, John F. Kennedy. When she met uh, uh, John F. Kennedy. He went up to John F. Kennedy and he said, hey, so uh, what's your favorite color? And John F. Kennedy, the answer was, oh, we only wear red. <laughs> he says, no, no, but what's your favorite color? He says, we like red. No, what's yours? So these are some of the things you hear that are weird, but that's maybe a cultural ritual thing that they have for their family. So are these a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's rituals that were passed down to everybody? Oh, yeah. like He would be seen as their god. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, he is source. They call him source. L. Ron Hubbard is source. Got it. So if L. Ron H Hubbard said, you can only wash windows 
with ammonia and newspaper and water, that's it. Like you get in trouble. If you get a can of Windex out and you start spraying those windows, you, you, you're gonna get a report written on you. What do they think about promiscuity? Uh, 100% against that. Oh, really? In the C organization, if you wanna have relations with a girl, you have to be married. You can't even like do a test drive. You have to be married, period. So no sex before getting married. Yeah. So they're firm about that. Oh, 100%. I've, there's a, is there a C- specific type of a condom I have to use? Or is there, no, they're no. pretty in open the about In the C organization, they have a, a, a prison camp that's called the Rehabilitation Project Force. If you have sex with your girlfriend before you're married, you'll go to the Rehabilitation Project Force. Because I need help? Yeah, you need to be rehabilitated because your your morals, your moral compass is out of tune, and you could spend a year, two, ten years on the reli- on the rehabilitation project force. I mean, what is that rehabilitation? Is it is it like such do, an exciting moment of rehabilitating with no, somebody? No, no, you do hard labor like construction or okay. janitorial stuff. Oh, okay, okay all day it. long, every day. I'm thinking like I'm rehabilitating with another sexual partner no. to get it out of my there's system. No, and there's no relations while you're on the RPF. Period. None. None. No, now, none. you were married 13 years, though. You, you, uh, I've been married 26 years But now. at the time, when you were leaving, you were worried because you were worried about what's going to happen with your marriage, right? Cause yeah, well, I didn't see my wife a lot when I was there. She worked, in, she worked actually for David Miscavige. She worked in the Religious Technology Center. Wow. And I worked in the production organization, so we did video and film. So you guys are still married? We're still married. We have did, three children. Did your mom also leave the church? No. I have she, not spoken to my... Uh, my mom is disconnected from me. I'm not allowed to speak to her. She's alive. Yeah, and my sister and my brother. I've and not they're spoken, still part of it. I've not spoken to them since 2005. What do they think of you? They think I'm a suppressive person. My mom told her family, who's not in Scientology, she said that if she spoke to me, it would risk the future eternity for all mankind. She told her family that, who aren't in Scientology. If that she spoke to me, it would risk the now future eternity for all mankind. you how some of this stuff it, it is yeah. you're saying. Like, but she who, believes that. She believes that? that if she speaks to me that all future mankind's eternity is at risk. What do you believe in now? I'm sort of like a karma guy, like do good things, good things will so happen So you don't believe you. in God? Um, I'm curious, because this experience, what has it done to your spiritual life? It's made me very cynical in terms of, of that course. angle. So that's why I say, I, I, do, I do have this idea that there is something greater than us, right. and, and there's a, a, some sort of force, whether, it's, I'm, I don't say that I'm religious. I say I'm spiritual. Do so, you believe there's a creator? You think there is a I God? Think there, I think there's somebody there's out there somebody that's doing else. something. But I'm not, I don't believe in organized religion. So Buddhism may be good for you. Yeah, sure. Mm. I've, I've studied all sorts of things yeah. since I left. But it, like I said, I'm a, bit, I'm a bit skeptical and I'm a bit sort of like, <laughs> I do a double take or a second guess, a second look, because I think, hmm. I kind of did that. Have you ever sent your mom like a Bible? Just say, Mom, I want you to read this Bible. It may change your life. No, we saw her at a funeral um, a few years ago. and She saw you. Yeah, and that's when she said this to the family was after that because she talked to my boys. I have three boys that she'd never met. I have five, 10, and 12-year-old. So what does your 12-year-old think about this whole thing? Like, did they give it a hard time when you go to school or not really? No, they no, didn't they leave don't, them no one knows anything. No one knows what's going on. No. Maybe in high school. Maybe they'll have to explain. But even then, you know. No one would care. I'm a rock star. I'm how, on TV. How, so what other rituals do they have? What other things is there in Scientology that may be comparable to other things? You know how you said promiscuity, they don't believe in that. Well, that's across the board with religion. 
Elrond Hubbard wrote a, a book called The Way to Happiness. It's okay. basically like the rewrite of the Ten Commandments. Okay. Don't murder, don't steal. So same, the ten don't are the ten. Don't sleep with your neighbor, your wife's neighbor. You know, all, all this kind of stuff. They do Sunday services, they do marriages, but it's all, it's all under the guise of we're a religion. So they basically took the easy stuff that they could do. Yeah. They would make them like other religions and said, let's do all that stuff. Let's make I a chapel. I saw a model I was reading somewhere where it was almost like he was following a system of being a martyr when he was married three times. And he says, everybody in my family pretty much, you know, went against me because they wanted him to move and he didn't want to move. California and his daughter said, no, that's not actually the case. It's a different story because my mom didn't want to go through it anymore. And then his first son, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., who changed his name to Wolf, or I don't know what mm -hmm. the na new the name Wolf. is. Yeah. Uh, uh, what happened there? What happened with his family? Because a lot of times you'll hear uh, you know, leaders go through what they go through, and then there's a falling out. Like when Billy Graham had a falling out with his son, Franklin Graham, everybody's like, oh my gosh, if his own son doesn't want to follow him, maybe Billy Graham is somebody that's this. If Ronald Reagan's oldest son, Ron Reagan, you know, his biological son is against him. He's a liberal. What is up with Ronald Reagan, right? So yeah. what, what do you know? Uh, did you ever meet his son? Like, what do you know about the whole story of his kids against L. Ron Hubbard? I've never met his kids. I'm very good friends with L. Ron Hubbard's granddaughter. And she escaped, I want to say like four or five years ago, from the exact same place that I worked. How long was she there? She was there since she was born. How long is that? Um, 30 years, okay. 30, 35 years. Got it. Um, and she is the daughter of Diana Hubbard, who is the only child of L. Ron Hubbard that still is in the C organization. That still is in the C organization. She still works there. And she works at the international headquarters. And so her and Diana, her mom, it's like nothing. There is no relationship at all. No, because she escaped. Wow. So L. Ron Hubbard had other kids as well. And those kids have not spoken out. He's had seven kids. I think seven is the kids he's got. Yeah. And I think the ones that are still around, well, I don't know about the ones before. Like in Scientology, those other families and those other wives, they don't exist. Like they're not, they, you know, I didn't even know about them until I got out of Scientology. Got it. Like I found out he was married two times before. Got it. After I left. Like what? Like in Scientology history books, hmm. they're not in them. They rewrote his history. So as far as I know, there's about three or four kids that are still around doing stuff. And I'm pretty sure that Scientology has them sort of taped up. Like they're not going to say anything. They're not going to say anything. No. So how about... Uh, and I think it has to do with bank money. accounts. Money, yeah. yeah. So how about, is it Jenna Miscavige? That's right. So, so what Miscavige happened there? Miscavige has a very similar situation. Besides, he's only been married once. Jenna is his niece. Jenna is his niece, who is the daughter of his brother. And she worked at the headquarters as well. And she also escaped. And she wrote a book. And it doesn't paint her uncle very nicely. And it also, it, in that book, it basically talks about how he took pleasure in separating her from her mom and dad. David did. Yeah, David Miscavige. He, how he separated them pretty much every chance he got. And he took pleasure in it. That's kind of the takeaway from that book. And she didn't have that great of an upbringing just in general in that Scientology world. But his wife has been disappeared since I think 2007 
and it's there's a lot of speculation on where she is and that sort of thing. But up until then, she was with him everywhere and anywhere he went, his wife was by his side. When I worked at the property, if he showed up in your area, nine times out of ten, she'd be with him. And she was his assistant. She, he's chairman of the board, COB, and she was COB assistant. And anytime he came to your area or did an inspection, she was with him. So for her to be not with him, that's a little suspicious. Um, his brother escaped from the church. His David's. David's brother, Ron, uh, Ron Jr., escaped from the church. Ron was just on uh, uh, Joe Rogan. Is, is that that's a different... That's Ron Sr. That's his dad. Oh, that's right. That's his dad that was his on Joe Rogan. His dad recently yes. escaped. Yeah. And he doesn't have anything good to say about David. Um, his and, own dad. His own dad. And, and I knew Ron very well when I worked at the property. His dad. Yeah, because I was over the production areas, and he was a musician. And he... Uh, he was like a score composer uh, musician in the um, at Golden Air Productions, and um, and I knew him very well. And you, it was kind of weird to see Dave Miscavige show up to an area and f- to hear his dad say, "Yes, sir. No, sir." Like his dad had to call him sir. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm telling you, Dave Miscavige has the the hit, the property's about 500 acres, and I'd say David Miscavige ego just barely fits there. <laughs> I mean, who's he like? What's his personality like? Because there's not a lot of stuff to read up on this guy. I've, by the way, I've been given the video, the introductory video, when somebody wants to introduce Scientology to you multiple times. It's a DVD. Yeah. You put it in. You watch and it. It's a video of him. It's him speaking. His hands are like at this. At the Celebrity he, Center. Yeah, at the Celebrity Center. So I've yeah. seen. And by the way, you know. I've, I've seen that multiple times, and yeah. I've listened to the story, the pitch, the presentation. But uh, like you said, Koppel, the last time the interview was done 24 years ago, there's really not a lot of stuff on him. So no. is, that, is that intentional? Yeah, absolutely. So what's the reason why it's intentional? Because he is above that. Got it. So is, like, is, I'll it, give you a good example. When they did that interview with Ted Koppel, it won an Emmy, that show. Ted Koppel got an Emmy. David Miscavige didn't get an Emmy. They made an Emmy for him. Like they made a replica Emmy and gave it to David Miscavige because he's really the one that earned the Emmy. When, he, when uh, David Miscavige went to a party, it was, I think it was like Oprah or it was like a Missy Elliott birthday party. I don't know, something. John Travolta was there, Oprah, Bill Clinton was there. When he came back to the property, somebody said, sir, sir, is it true that you met Bill Clinton? David Miscavige said, no. He met me. That's David Miscavige. He's hardcore. I mean, from the 15 years that I worked there, he was pretty much, I'd say 99% of the time, he was a, a prick. And every once in a while, like on rare occasions, when you'd be with him, he'd just be a d- He was pretty hardcore. <laughs> We'd be in meetings and he would punch people in the meeting. Like while they're sitting, you, you, you say things at the, like that. That's at the so table. hard to believe, though. No, no, I'm telling you, dude. I've seen it so many times that we would get called, and, th- and that's the other thing. Dude loves to have meetings, so we're having meetings <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so, like, you're in the production area. Like, I was over a lot of people, and you're trying to get work done. You can't be sitting in meetings, five, six, seven-hour meetings. Oh yeah. We got all the time in the world, folks. Nobody's going anywhere. 120 hours a week you're working. Yeah, you could do a 10-hour meeting. That's a squeeze that in, no problem. It was a time period in the early 2000s 
when you would go to a meeting and there's gonna be one beatdown for sure. There could be multiple beatdowns in a meeting, in a single meeting. And, and because I was, I was a, over a bunch of different production areas, so sometimes I have to go to like three or four meetings in a row. So I would be at one meeting and you really, I mean, in my book I compare it, it's called Blown for Good Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. Because when I got out, that was the only thing I could find that was like that, where, oh no, it's all wonderful, everything's wonderful here. And there's propaganda and there's a whole organization made to shoot propaganda films. And, but when you're there, you're fearing for your life. You're thinking, today could be my, my number could be today. I could get a beat down no in one this got meeting. Killed, though. It, 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 no one got killed. But if you go to a meeting. You say fear for your life. And you're though. not, no, fear for my safety. Oh, for safety. Got you're it. not allowed to hit back. Okay? Like, it's one thing. If you want to go toe-to-toe I mean, just, with me and I got a fighting chance. Like, I'm, a, I'm, a pretty, I'm pretty stocky. I can use my weight. Okay, but if I can't hit you back, what am I going to do? It, it reminds me of uh, the interview with Michael Francisi when he said, you cannot hit a, hit a made man, right? You cannot hit a made man. It's similar fundamentals of the Italian mafia. Yeah. You can't raise your hand on a made so man. So that was why I pretty much knew when that one time when he punched me and then I was like, you know, like... And he said, did you see that? That guy was hitting me back. I, I thought at that point... Game over. Was that in 03? The Pope of Scientology. I think it was... I th- want to say it was 2003, 2004. So you're the already on your way. You're almost Pope on your way Pope of Scientology just gave me a beat down. And I, if left to my own devices, would have fought back. I don't know how much of, of a future I've got here at this point. Because now he knows... That I'm a I'm a unstable I'm an, an unknown commodity so to speak, but but either way, he had an assistant. It was when his wife was there, but then yes, and had another assistant. It was called his communicator, and she had band aids and a little uh, fanny pack for people that would get bloody from him get giving beatdowns. So like somebody would get punched. And then there would be, and, and this is the thing. Now, here, here's the craziness. You're sitting in a meeting, a conference room table with people around it. And people are getting choked and punched and shoved up against walls. And then they're getting a little cut. And, you, and they're not getting out of their seats. They're sitting there. There's more meeting to go. And then it's like, hey. And then it's like, it's not in a, he's not even saying, get that person a meeting. He's just like, hey. And the assistant's like, yes, sir. Gets a bandit, gives it to the person. That person's putting, or someone's helping them put a Band-Aid on. You cannot, that's the thing, you cannot make this shit up, okay? This is from multiple people. There's Jefferson Hawkins is a person who was at the international base. He's the one who created those Dianetics Volcano commercials. That's the guy who made those. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Dreams. There's another girl that was in the international management. Her name is Amy Scobie. She wrote a book called Abuse at the Top. Uh, Ron Miscavige wrote a book. My book is out there. There's people that worked at that place. And, and if you read my book and then you read Amy's book and you read Jeff's book, you'd be like, okay. It, exact same story, different perspective, different person, different uh, areas they worked in. But the overriding message is that David Miscavige micromanages the hell out of Scientology and that he's abusive He's got a temper, a huge temper. He's got a giant ego. And when you're at that property, you don't mess with him. If he says jump, you say how high. Is there a replacement coming up anytime soon? No, or he'll, he'll be no going way. for a while. All the people that are under him, 
he has beat them or told all their deepest, darkest secrets to each other. Like when I was there, they created this thing called the hole. And it was the International Management Building is two double wide trailers and all of the executives in Scientology are locked in those two trailers. They're not allowed to leave. They sleep there, they eat there, they do everything there. Once a day, they're marched down to a facility that has some showers and they can take a shower and then they're marched right back up there. And all they did all day long was have seances and confess crimes, all day long. He said, you guys are in here until you confess all your crimes and no one leaves until you do that. I left in 2004. I talked to a girl who left in, I wanna say 2010. They were still in there. They were still confessing their crimes. So if you worked in a group of 10 people and you were the boss and all of these nine people under you were all confessing their crimes to each other, like the horriblest things they did to, to just, that destroyed Scientology or screwed up a whole plan or program here or there. When you, when you leave, Who's going to take over that? No, I know you screwed up that. No, you screwed up this. You, they're, they're all, I think if David Miscavige got hit by a bus tomorrow, I think 90% of those people would just be like, I'm out. Really? Oh, yeah. So, so let me ask you Because they know he's going to, that's the other thing. When you're there, you know that if you leave, they're going to they're gonna make your life miserable. Let and, me ask you this. And the only reason I left because I knew I'd rather be dead than to be there. Seriously, you say that? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I contemplated just driving into a wall and just killing myself. You're being serious. Absolutely. It, death, Suicide. Death would be a better existence than, than living there. When you were planning on leaving, did you and your wife have a conversation about no. leaving? If you say anything to anyone. Even your wife? Even your wife, boom, you're done. So when, when you left, how much longer did your wife leave? A few weeks. Most people there weren't allowed on the internet. I was, because I was over a research department and I was over a bunch of production areas, I was setting up internet stations, so I was allowed to get on the internet. So it's 05. So 05, Facebook 04. came out what, 04? Yeah, this is in 03, 04. I was on the internet. I had a Hotmail account that nobody knew about. That you use on the outside. That I used. Kind of like Hillary Clinton stuff. <laughs> I used on the side. Yeah. Anyway, my wife knew that I had that email account, but no one else knew that. When I left, she called her sister, who wasn't at that headquarters. So it was just a, uh, her sister lived in Los Angeles. Yeah. And she said, hey, can you email Mark something? I got a new phone. Because after I left, they gave her a different phone, so I couldn't call her. Um, they said, she said, can you call, um, give Mark, email Mark and give him this new number? My phone got switched, and I, he's on a project, and I just want him to know my new number. And so then over a few weeks, we orchestrated how we could get her out. How, how you can get her yeah. out. And, and when I escaped, I drove off on a motorcycle. Did anybody chase you or Absolutely. No? They ran me off the road in the security truck. Because I, I saw your cover of the book, Blown yeah. for It, that it was shows the motorcycle with two me. cars behind you. Yeah, right after that picture, they drove me off the road. And when they drove me off the road in the security SUV, somebody called 911. And that person saved my life. Because if, that, if the cops wouldn't have shown up, I would have gotten right back. Are you still in contact with that person that saved your life? No, I never knew who it was. It was an anonymous caller called 911. Got it. Um, but the police, by the time, because the Scientology guys, they have a scanner. So as soon as they heard that the police were coming to sort this out, they, they left. And the cops pulled me over. They said, what the hell? <laughs> they knew what the hell before they got there. 
as soon as they saw where my address was, they said, oh, he lives at the property. And they call, that cop called for backup, and they escorted me into the town away from the property. Because the, the town is about 15 minutes from where, it's in the middle of the desert, the compound. Um, so if you escape on foot, nine times out of 10, they catch you. They just get you and bring you back. What do you mean they catch you? Like, who's they, chasing you down? They have a drill. When someone leaves, it's called a blow. Blow, yeah. Okay? So someone who's left is referred to as blown or so-and-so blue. They have a drill there at the property called the blow drill. So if somebody escapes, there's about 50, 60 people that snap into action. They call hotels. They, run, uh, they go on the Internet. They look up your credit card account to see where your last charges were. This will blow your mind. They have people that work for Verizon, Sprint, AT&T. If you have a sister or a brother or whatever that's got a phone account, they will tap into their phone account and see if you called them. Come on. When I got my dossier, a guy that escaped from the Scientology compound, he had my dossier from the Office of Special Affairs. They have all the phone calls I made for months. Who I called, how long and how long the conversation was. I'm telling you, you go like, oh, they're just like other religions. Really? You think so? <laughs> so what, what do you foresee taking place with Scientology? If you know this much that you know, and you're on Leah Remini, and you're doing all the things that you're doing, well, what, here's what do you thing. foresee taking place? I don't, think, I don't think I can talk enough about it. Because if I do this show with you, and one person gets saved from not getting into it, or one person whose daughter is dabbling with it, it manages to get them out, it's totally worth it. So 100%. You're, you're a crusader of wanting to stop everybody and anybody from getting involved. I spent 15 years in that hellhole. If I can make it so anybody doesn't have to spend a day in that, then it's worth it to me. It's worth it. But, um, but yeah, back to the blow drill. The, these people are activated and they will find you. They found me when I left. They found my wife. When my wife escaped, she got on a, gray, a Greyhound bus in Riverside. And I told her to go a totally different way so they, would, they wouldn't know where she was going. I told her to turn off her phone so they wouldn't be able to track the GPS. When she got to wherever it was, the misdirection, when she got there, she didn't know how to use a phone card because we grew up in this bubble. Wow. So she went to go make a phone call and it would, only took phone cards. It didn't take coins. She didn't know how to call. She didn't know how to get a phone card. She didn't even know how to call me without a... There's no way to do it. She turned on her phone. When she got to Vegas, they were waiting for her at the bus station. When she got off the bus, there was two people from the international headquarters standing there waiting for her. Were you there as well? No, no, I was in Kansas City. So what happened when she got there? She sat down in the middle of the bus station, and this is all in my book. It's actually pretty crazy. She sat down in the middle of the bus station and told them if they touched her, she would scream. And so they watched her sit in the bus station, and when her bus came, they watched her get up and get on the bus and go. And while that was happening, they called me, and I didn't know they, how did they even have my number? New number you have. I totally knew phone, knew everything. They just called me, hey, we got Claire. We got your wife, she's not coming. And I'm literally losing my mind on the other end, because I thought I had planned it out pretty good. And then about an hour later, she called me, and she said, no, they didn't get me, I'm on the bus, I'm, I'm coming. That's, an, that's a light story. On this season of The Aftermath, there is an escape story that is unbelievable. It, when you hear, you gotta watch. When you watch and you hear how this girl escaped, and this is a girl that escaped 
I want to say like two years ago. So Scientologists say this never happened. No one has to escape. If somebody wants, they can just walk right out the door. No, no, this girl escaped in the, in the in most insane way that you could possibly believe, like that you would see in a movie. And there was another couple that tried to escape, and they were intercepted. That this girl knew and what, talked what about. What is Leah Remini's uh, 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 purpose of doing what she's doing right now? What is what is her outcome? Because you know she was on Howard Stern. Oh yeah. And on Howard Stern, she said, "Look, this works. Just leave me alone. If it works, it works. Leave me alone." And then she turned into wanting to step away. What is her reasoning to get to this point? Like, listen, there are people that leave the church. And they just go about their business. But she's yeah. in Hollywood. And she's in Hollywood going against and coming out with something like this and wins an Emmy. What was her motivation to have the tipping point of saying, screw it. I don't care if I lose friends. I don't care what happens. I have to go out there and tell the story. What happened to her? Well, I think she would best answer that. But from what I've been able to ascertain, she saw a glimpse of what, hap- of what happens behind the scenes. So she saw... She was friends with Shelley Miscavige. She, they would trade cards and gifts and Christmas and all that stuff. They were basically like, they were friends. As, as friends as you could be with Shelley Miscavige and her being a Scientology celebrity. And when Shelley was disappeared and just vanished and suddenly birthday cards aren't getting answered and notes aren't getting answered, she was writing to what Shelley. What happened to Shelley? Shelley was David Miscavige's wife and she was basically, according to people that were there, um, she did some stuff that Dave didn't like. And so he was like, you're done. You're out of here. And he shipped her off. The place where she's most likely at or has most likely been at is a facility called the Church of Spiritual Technology, which is a secret compound in, up in the mountains up in, near Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead. At that property, they put all of L. Ron Hubbard's writings, they etch them into metal plates and they put all of his recordings onto golden records and they seal them in titanium capsules and they dig vaults into sides of mountains that are nuclear proof and they store all these writings because they believe when the whole place is blown up and obliterated that it's going to be like the rena- like they're gonna, someone's going to find she's, these. You're thinking she's over there right That's now. That's where but. she is. There's only about maybe 10 or 15 people that work at that facility. How public was she? Like, when David was up, was she public in the videos and the talks? And the Absolutely. If, if he was at an event, she was standing right by And she's side. no longer there at any, for how long? Since 2007. So you think that may be one of the reasons why she decided to come out and go against no, him? No, no. She's not against him. She just screwed something up and he got pissed at her. No, no, no. Not Shell. I'm talking about uh, oh, uh, Leah. Uh, oh, Leah. Yeah. I'm talking well, about so, Leah. Yeah, so Leah, Leah was at... A wedding. She was at Tom Cruise's wedding to Katie Holmes. And David Miscavige was the best man in their wedding. Where's Shelley? She wasn't there. Scientology billed it as the wedding of the century. Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. David Miscavige's wife's not, not here. She didn't come. She didn't get an invite. I don't think so. And Leah was like, and she asked, where's Shelley? That's what happened. She asked, where's Shelley? And then she got in trouble. And she had to go get... Uh, interrogations and this thing called sex checking which is where you have to basically confess whatever crimes you have against Scientology and against David Miscavige and um, and she got a little taste of what happens in the real Scientology so most of your Grant Cardone's and your Bob Duggan these big millionaire guys that give money to Scientology not, they don't see any of this and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure that if they did see it that might give them a reason to go like, whoa, hold on a second. But when you're a Scientologist, you're trained 
to as soon as somebody starts talking bad about Scientology, you, that's it. You cut. That's it. You block it. You just go no, 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 no. I'm not hearing it. Like you, you shut it off. You cannot hear anything bad about Scientology, and that's really how they continue on is this policy of disconnection. That disconnection is the control mechanism that they use to keep people in Scientology. Because if if every ex there's more ex Scientologists than there are current Scientologists. Of course, if it's 100,000 to 20, that's yeah. 80,000 that are no right longer there. part of it. Yeah. So if they heard what those people had to say about what happened to them, yeah. then most people would be like, I don't think so. I'm so, out of here. So let me ask you this other question. So uh, you, you've had dealings with, I'm assuming you've had dealings with probably Cardone and Cruz. You've had some dealings with some yep. of these guys. Yep. What was your dealing like with Tom Cruise? When I was at the international headquarters, he needed to audit somebody. Yeah. And... Most of the people there have been in Scientology for a long time and had done Scientology courses and counseling outside of before they got into the Sea Org. Well, I got into the Sea Org when I was 16, so I didn't do anything. I haven't even read Dianetics to this day. And um, so he needed somebody to basically be like a guinea pig for him to practice on. And Tom. I, yeah, and I was that person. So he did all sorts of Scientology processing on How me. was Tom like when you dealt with Tom? He's a great guy. He's a little like over the top. Like he's always the double handshake guy. Yeah. He's the, do you need anything? Do you need a water? Do you need a this? Do you need a that? Do you need a, you sure? Everything good? You're, that's Tom. He's, and that was in. So cool guy. He, that he, was in the early 90s. Yeah. Okay. And he was kind of a newbie in Scientology at that time. He, he had said that he'd been in it for a while though. Well, he wasn't doing anything. Though. Right. He was just a Scientologist. He wasn't doing anything. When you're at the international headquarters and you're doing courses, now you can call yourself a Scientologist. Got it. Um, he was with Nicole Kidman at that time, and I don't even think they were married at that time. And she was at the property, too. She was doing courses in the same room with him. Where, the, where he was doing the counseling with me, she was right there doing uh, courses. She was doing the PTSSP course, which is where you learn about potential trouble source and suppressive people. So she was studying. She about was doing me, that like course what a PTS right. Yes, would be. She was doing that course ten feet from where we were doing the counseling, and so was Kirstie Alley. They had Kirstie Alley there as a prop, because you can't set up like a little super super exclusive course room for Scientology celebrities and them be the only two celebrities. So they threw Kirstie in there as a prop, and she's doing something that was totally 100% useless. <laughs> anyway, but um, they weren't even married yet. And at the time, he was shooting, I think he just finished shooting Days of Thunder. He had like the long, longish kind of hair. A lot of people say it's not a good movie. Hey, I've watched that 50 times in the army. When I was there, I'm a, I'm, I think I was like, I was like 17, 18. So to you, it's like it's Tom Cruise. Come on. Yeah. What are you going to do? Yeah. I thought this guy, and, that, and, and that's what I remember. Holy, that's, I'm going to get the... Hang out with Tom Cruise for a few months. Anyway, fast forward to the next time I saw him was in 2004. 14 years later. Yeah. He never, he, he came to the property and he arrived in a helicopter. He was whisked in. He did whatever he did and he left. I think he did a lot of research for films, Mission Impossible films and stuff like that. He did at the property. And he, there was a huge library we had in the castle where we did all the film shooting. And he basically had free run of the whole place. Anyway. He was at the property and getting toured around. We had just built a ton of stuff, editing uh, post-production bays, online bays, edit, all these Avid edit bays, all this cool stuff. And he was getting a tour, and I was in one of the areas when he was walking through, and he was like, Mark, and I was like, oh. And so even then, he was chill with you. He was, he was chill, but at that time, he was a totally different dude. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. 
he was like, he was hardcore. Anybody, In too deep with David. Yeah, and at the time, Dave would tell us, I just told Tom that I beat the shit out of all you guys. And he said, if, 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 if I need it, he'll come over here and he'll beat the shit out of you guys. And he was basically, so at that point, Tom knew what was going on. Dave was telling Tom what he was doing. Is that a conspiracy when David told Tom that you gotta leave Nicole Kidman? Like that whole thing, is that, is that just a story? You know, this Mary, the, okay, so you don't know enough to comment on that one. I'll tell you what we knew at the property. Right. F- fact, fiction, I don't know. Because it was all what we were told. It was kind of like if Dave Miscavige says that Nicole Kidman is sleeping with Ewan McGregor and she's pregnant, even though Tom is sterile, then she's an SP. That's what we were told. So it was the, that was the rumor that was going around the base, was that Tom and Nicole both had assistants. And both of those assistants were Scientologists. And both of those assistants reported up to the church on every move they made. Through that information, it was ascertained that Nicole had cheated on Tom because she was pregnant. And as far as everyone knew, including Tom, he was unable to have kids. So that she was pregnant meant that she was sleeping around. So that's what we were told. I, don't, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the Years bedroom. Later. I have no idea yeah. what happened. But Marty Rathbun, who had since left, did many interviews where he said that he was tasked with getting Tom back in to the fold. That was one of the things that they used to basically get him back in. Was that so it may have never happened. It may have been a conspiracy. Because may have obviously been a cons- he ended up having kids afterwards. Right. Okay. But either way, so, sure. when he divorced her, he was back in hardcore and that was in, I think that was in the early 2000s or late 90s. So I read about the fact that uh, L. Ron Hubbard in the 70s, he just kind of said, I'm going to go live on a ship for, he pretty much lived on a ship for like a decade or something like that in the 70s with some friends and it would come and they go and a lot of his philosophies got clear on this ship, apparently. Yeah. That's where the Sea Org was started in 1965. Right. Um, he was being basically hunted by different governments. And he had to find a place to go where they couldn't get him. And that ended up being in the ocean. Is this also documented, by the way? Absolutely. Because I know there was a lot of countries he couldn't even go park, you know, he couldn't even go. They couldn't even dock the boat Dock the the ship. So this is actual factual that these events. I'm pretty sure. There was six countries that that he couldn't go to. I was going to say, there's a certain thing where I think in certain countries his passport was not valid there. Like, he could not travel to that country. And then after that is when he decided to come back, and he calls it the Sea Org. And that's, so the, a lot of the inspiration came from that ship. Yeah, what, what so that's experience? where he wrote a lot of the counseling procedures and a lot of the courses were all written in that 1960s, very uh, early 70s period was when a lot of these things were tested on people right. and then codified, and then he would write it, and then they would send that out to different Scientology organizations. In the 70s, the Sea Organization moved to land. And when they moved to land, they started, they, they, they eventually ended up in Clearwater. And the Clearwater, that giant facility in Clearwater, is called the Flag Land Base. Because the flagship is the ship that controls all the other ships. So when he landed in Clearwater, that's where Flag ended up. 
And now we're on land. It's called the Flagland Base. And to this day, it's called the Flagland Same Base. Same thing. Yeah. It's not, they, Got it. And that's what I'm saying. When L. Ron Hubbard says it's the Flagland Base, that's it. It's the Flagland Base. Right. So it's never going to change to anything else because he's not writing any new stuff. I so. thought it was interesting that he went away and he did a lot of his writing to put the system together. Play. It's almost as if he put the playbook together on how to grow the church. But by the way, what were some of the bigger names in the 70s that were part of the church? Was there any celebrities in the 70s? Sure. You got like Stanley Clark, who was a famous jazz musician. Right. Chick Corea. Um, there was a guy, when I went to a Scientology school in Los Angeles, there was this guy, Brody. He was like a football player. John Brody, I hmm. think was his name. Uh, John Travolta was a big 70s, 80s. Oh, so John Travolta goes back to the 70s, 80s. Time. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, okay, got it, got it. So, so the Ted Koppel interview, mm-hmm. there was some controversy within the Scientology church because apparently when you go to a certain level, that's when the name Xenu uh, 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 comes up. Yeah, in, OT, in OT3, I think, is where they first talk about Xenu, who's this intergalactic overlord. Right. And you learn about these little aliens that are attached to you. You have thousands and thousands of these little aliens attached to you. I have aliens attached to me. Everybody does, especially you. And um, <laughs> anyway, so they I have ha- Middle Eastern aliens, Mario. <laughs> Iranian, are you from Iran? Uh, from Iran. Iranian aliens, aliens okay. attached to you. And, and you have to do these uh, OT levels. And that's where you, you basically um, kick them out. You evict them one by one. And it takes forever because there's so many of them. And it could take you 10 years to evict all these guys. Well, Xenu is the guy who made all those, uh, those aliens. He took uh, Thetans, or beings, from other planets, and he dumped them in some volcanoes on Earth. And that's how he created all these aliens that attach to bodies. Okay. When they did the Ted Koppel interview, they showed that whole story of Xenu, because this is written. There's L. Ron Hubbard lectures you can listen to on the internet where he tells the entire story. It's not made up. This is what they believe. There was a South Park episode that detailed this entire, what Scientologists believe, and they told the whole Xenu story on that episode. Are you ready to hear the truth? I, I guess. The genius of South Park. Right? And I watched the episode when I first left. Okay, so when you're in Scientology, they believe that if you hear about this story... Of Xenu. Of Xenu, before you get to that level, then you will die of pneumonia. Because that's the way the trap has been built, is that if you gain this information before you're ready to receive it, then you will basically self-destruct. Okay. So in Scientology, it is, a, it is a suppressive act. So if you've done OT3, you're not allowed to tell anyone about Xenu. Even if somebody's already done ET, uh, OT3, you still can't even tell them about Xenu. You can't tell anybody about Xenu, period. And because of this thing, you're going to kill them. So in the Ted Koppel interview on Nightline, they told the whole Xenu story. He did or they did? Ted no, did. No, they did a whole piece on it. Like they had had a prepared they piece. Asked, okay, got it. And so they didn't tell Dave they were going to do it either. They totally, totally surprised. It was like, hello, gotcha. What about this? And, and then Dave, they say, what about that? And then Dave says some spin like, oh, uh, that's some random lecture that L. Ron Hubbard get. No, that's like, that's like the big... Big. That's like an origin story in Scientology. Like this is a big belief uh, precept 
of Scientology is this thing about the aliens. And you learn as you go. There's all sorts of other things. You learn, basically, when I was talking about the bait and switch earlier, this is another one of these bait and switches. Because on OT3, you find out about all these aliens. And then on OT7, you have to get rid of all the aliens. And then on OT8, you find out you created the aliens. They were never there. You created them. I created the aliens. You created the aliens. Is this like a... Because you're a god. That's where you learn you're, on OT8, you're a god. And you created the aliens as a game or as a, a task for yourself to be able to get rid of them. And anything that you did that was aberrated came from the aliens. So when you cheated on your wife, that was one of the aliens that made you cheat on your wife. I mean, this would make half the men in the world happy right? if they could blame oh, an alien. I've got aliens. That's, what, that's, what my, that's why my gambling I don't have programs. demons. I have aliens. The aliens want to go to Vegas. I want to stay here with you, honey. Babe, I love you. <laughs> wow. So Zena was a big contradiction. Because I read, read a lot about the, uh, that interview with Ted Koppel created a lot of controversy that from there on it was kind of like, you know, let's not even start addressing it because it's better off we no longer do interview. That's why I asked you earlier, why hasn't he been on TV Well, now, yeah. now he's... he's when, at the property, when I left in 2005, he was paranoid that he thought people there were trying to poison him. Poison him? Yeah. So, so let, me, uh, let me take it on a, uh, on a different side. So you think the church is going to uh, collapse once David is no longer involved? That's what you think is going to happen? Unless enough people speak out. Like, I'm one person. There's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people that have similar stories to mine. If those people would speak out as well, then it would probably speed it up. And it might even collapse before David Miscavige gets hit by a bus or whatever happens to him. You, you think one of the reasons why some people have such a strong emotional connection to the Scientology church is because, like I can tell you from personal experience with friends, I had an office of mine, um, uh, Granada Hills, right? We were in Granada Hills, and we probably work with 50, 100 Scientologists mm -hmm. in our office. And one thing I can tell you, uh, my experiences with them, if I tell you it's 90% positive, it's probably an understatement. I had a great experience working yeah. with these guys. Uh, and those guys are not exposed to any of the things well, yeah, that I've I, talked I wouldn't to you know. about. I, mean, I could tell you, they worked. They were workers. Yeah. They'd be out there running, gunning, running. They didn't have a problem driving six hours to an appointment. And now, nothing. They were workers, hardcore workers. And I remember how many friends that I, you know, I had a couple friends that were going through trying to overcome heroin and, and, and ecstasy and, and addiction to Vicodin. Vicodin was the hardest one out of all of them, even harder than heroin. And, hey, why don't you try Scientology's methods called Narconin or something like Narconon. that? Narconon. Narconon, yeah. And send them there because the system that L. Ron Hubbard came out himself with from his own research that he did, this helps people you know, overcome a drug addiction. And, and the amount of testimonies I heard, it's a lot of positive testimonies. You know, that I, I mean, obviously there's three people that died that they went through because exactly. they, I, I've read that as well. I'm, yeah. I'm gonna give both. But, you know. If 100 people get off drugs and three end up dying, the FDA wouldn't approve that drug, I don't think. No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. But did you yourself, while you were there, or even after you left, did you also see yourself positive experiences on the way they handled people that got off drugs and then they stayed off of drugs. Because when somebody's on drugs, it's, I'm with Robert Shapiro. Robert Shapiro was uh, the dream team, mm -hmm. uh, uh, O.J. Simpson's attorney. Yep. 
and he lost his son, Brent Shapiro. He started a foundation called Brent Shapiro, and he said there's this notion that people who are on drugs, they're in control. He says they will lie to you and say anything to you to convince you that they're okay, and they're not, because psychologically they're gone, right? So here's a person that's hostage with the drugs, and they don't know how to stop their addiction, and I find a church called Scientology that helps me get off of something that I've had no control over. No organization's been able to fix this. No government organization. Nothing's been able to fix it. I'm off of it. I'm going to give my life to this. Do you think there's a part of it where my loyalty is to it because you were able to help me get, get off drugs? Do you think there's some of that going on? I'd say that there are probably some people out there. Like I know Kirstie Alley, for instance, was a drug addict, and she got off drugs through the Narconon program. That's how she's such a dedicated Scientologist, I think. Um, I happen to know because I worked before I worked at the international headquarters I worked at the parent organization that was over Narconon and I happen to know 100% that the entire Narconon drug rehabilitation program is just Scientology courses there's there's nothing there was nothing developed for Narconon meaning meaning there's a there's a thing in Scientology called the purification rundown before you're allowed to do anything in Scientology whether you've done drugs, whether you're an addict, whether you got some Novocaine from the dentist, doesn't matter. Every single person that goes into Scientology, the first thing they have to do is called the Purification Rundown. And it's, you sit in a sauna five hours a day, and you take a whole bunch of vitamins, and you sweat out all the drugs, supposedly. That's how it works. That's what L. Ron Hubbard said. That's exactly what Narconon is. It's that, with all the Scientology taken out of it, they do the exact same thing. It wasn't like we said, Oh, let's develop and research a program that gets people off drugs. Was it effective, though? Was it? No, it's totally not effective. So you're saying it's not even effective? No, you can read testimonies from people that worked at Narconon. They, the people that work at Narconon, a lot of times, they recruit them to work at Narconon. After they do the program, yeah. they say, hey, you know what? We got you off drugs. Why don't you stay here and help more people get off drugs? Most people are like, well, that's great, because I'm not going to be able to get a job pretty much anywhere outside of here. And then they start working there, and then they start trading drugs for sex with the students. Students are dying. Students are ODing. When their money runs out, the insurance runs out, they just dump them on the corner, and they say, you're out. You go, there's no more money. Your parents aren't paying. You're done. You're out of here. So for whatever good that Narconon does, the bad, I assure you, far outweighs it. You believe that? Oh, 100%. I know. They have a, in Narconon, they say, in Scientology, they say they have a 76% success rate. That's what they say. Mm -hmm. They claim that 100%. In the publications, in, in their website, in pamphlets, they say we have a 76% success rate. If you go to any drug rehab program in the world, they're going to say, impossible. That is 100% impossible. There's no way they can, that's possible. The, the best, most effective drug re rehabilitation programs usually have like a 20 to 30% success rate. Maximum. Interesting. Like the ones that are scientifically, they've studied yeah. the people that have left. This 76% success rate is just like Scientology's enrollment figures or, or their member figures. If you ask Scientology, how many members do you have? They say 15 million, 17 million, 20 million, 10 million. There was a time, and you, there's, there's videos on the internet where public relations people that worked for Scientology will tell you that over the years, they would say, hey, we have five million members. And then they'd do a newspaper article a year later, and somebody would say, how many members do you have? And they'd say, what did we say last time? And they said, we said five million. Okay, we have six and a half million members. 
And over the years, they just kept the figure going. They don't. Have, I was working at the international headquarters. We were tracking all this stuff. They don't have those people. When you say twenty thousand members, you said the number twenty to thirty thousand members. Is that uh, how are you measuring the twenty to thirty thousand? How many are paying today? That's right. That's people oh, that so are you're doing measuring how many are Scientology services and that are active in Scientology. If got it. So the way Scientology counts versus it, if I once took a class and I attended, that total is about five five million. That that's right. That's so still a big number. So five million people have taken their courses. Well, or watched a film. So oh, like okay. they'll do they'll do a thing on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where they pass out movie tickets. They say, hey, you want to watch a free film? Right down the street from Man Chinese, and you walk in there and you watch a film. You're on that list. You're one of those saying. members. Okay. You wa- you watch a 30 minute film. Yeah. You're a member. I'd be curious to know how they measure that number. So last but not least, this last question here to wrap up before we uh, finish off with the book. So what do you do now? So you've been part of the church. You know, you were there. You worked. You know, you did your part. You left. You know, you were telling me earlier you were trying to buy a car. You had zero credit, nothing on your name, nothing going on, and so. And you bought this car from Galpin Ford, which is a place I bought three cars from yeah. off of Roscoe. Yeah. You know, a guy named uh, uh, Jaime Godina sold me the car. And, and right off the 405. Right off the 405. I had a friend I was dating at that time, but, you know, so I know that Roscoe and Basit area very well. So uh, going back to it, what do you do now? I mean, I know you run businesses as well. You've done yeah. millions of dollars in revenues as well. So tell me about your business life today. Um, when I left in 2005, I had nothing. Uh, my wife also... Uh, as well, no high school diploma, no, we didn't do college, we didn't, nothing. Um, we, I worked in the film industry in Hollywood for a little bit, yep. um, doing uh, post-production visual effects stuff, and then in 2007, I created an audiovisual systems integration company, and that company is going strong to this day, and we do, we basically design and install audiovisual systems for museums. So it's a niche. Yeah, we've worked on around the world, or is it mainly in the states? We've done a lot of work in the states so far. We have do have some projects coming up in other countries, but uh, we've done uh, three presidential libraries. We do a lot of music libraries. We do museums all nice. over the United okay. States. Um, and then I also have another company that my wife runs, which is a bookkeeping company. So she has um, basically um, staff all over the United States, and they do remote bookkeeping. So this was when I was doing a lot of computer systems and we could remote in. I thought, oh, we should have a thing. We could do remote bookkeeping so you don't have to have a, a bookkeeper. So you do millions per year? Uh, it depends on the year, but we, we, my wife and I, we have a competition. You've done well for yourself financially. <laughs> we have done well. When I left Scientology in the first three months that I was gone, yes. I made more in those first three months than I made in 15 years. And that's when I realized... Um, I can make a lot more. Here's a crazy question for you. Crazy question for you. How much of your current work ethic is stemmed from your years with Scientology? Well, I was working 120 hours a That's week. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so, so I'm built. <laughs> I'm built for stamina. So do you see why I'm asking that question? Because I, li- I lived in Iran. And yeah. when I lived in Iran, you know, I would say, you know, oh, my gosh, we were bombed. We were this. We, I was so paranoid because any day you could die. And then I went to the military. We're working 100 hours a week in the military. This is crazy. We're making no money. But then that's made me a couple hundred million dollars, right? So, well, but you also, you, right now, your life is a paradise. Oh, heaven on earth. That's right. Every that's day. It, that's how mine is. Right. I, I, if I work, like when I first left at 6 o'clock in the afternoon, I was like, 
but, but, but what am I going to okay. do? I got. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm. I'm ready to go until midnight. I was working till one or eight. Midnight or one a.m. for at Scientology's years. craziness when they well, work. I didn't learn it. I was. I was like a. I was a. Fuck, I was a slave. I get it. So, I fully get so that. So I'm programmed to work. So and also, there's a policy that they have there, which is, if you have a problem, solve it. Like you can't say to your senior, "I have a problem." What other principles you learned that helped you in your career? Because I'm telling you, the stuff that they would tell me, the assist, the audit, yeah. the this, the that. That's all bullshit. And I have, and I, from being there, I discount any of the technology, I discount. Okay. I don't think I learned anything from them. I think the lessons I learned from being there are what I learned. Like, I've put up with so much of David Miscavige's bullshit that when I was working and I didn't have my own company, there wasn't a boss that I worked for that I was like, you know, come on. This is the, like, like my boss came to me when I first left. My boss said, hey, would you mind staying till eight tonight? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's like five o'clock. I think like, I could stay till eight. Did you say he's going to punch me in the face at all? No. Were you thinking? That? But, but, but that's the thing. It's like, if, if you ask a regular person, can you stay till eight? That's a big ask. Yeah, we get it here all the time. Yeah. Believe me, but, it's crisis. But even one time they said, in order to make a deadline, we had to get a show edited and to the channel, and it had to air. And we had to get all these effects cut into the show. And it was there's no way to get it done unless we pulled an all-nighter. And I was the only one who could get all all the stuff together and get so, it. And I pulled an all-nighter, and I was like, it was like, dude, you're you were the most awesome guy ever in the world because you stayed all night. And I'm like. Dude, I was pulling an all-nighter maybe once or twice a week for the last 15 years. You, you, crazy question. You think if you didn't have that experience there, you'd be making the kind of money you're making today? I don't think so. Okay. Because, so, interesting. Because, I, by the way, I appreciate the answer. Well, yeah, but because also the obstacles that we had when I was there was, and, and for a lot of the time that I worked there, I dabbled in audiovisual systems. Even though it wasn't my assigned, you were making vid. That's right. You I were was making designing, videos, yes. or I was yes. saying, "Oh, we should use this. We should use that." Yes. And then, right before I left, that was my actual official post. Interesting. But so, I had what now I spend maybe a year or two planning and designing and going yeah. through with the architects yeah. and all. I did that in a week. Yeah, and and, 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 and it was always and it was always messed up. Because we should have been doing it a year or two when they were planning the building, not a week before we're supposed to install That's it. That's right. So everything was always, oh, there's no power here. Oh, there's no conduit. All these silly things that would never have happened. So there's a rule where it's, I think it's called the 10,000 hour rule. Mm -hmm. I got about 90,000 hours. <laughs> okay. So I'm good. <laughs> I, know, so, I know every wrong way from being in Scientology. Yeah. I know every wrong way to do everything. Business, for you. systems, everything. I know the wrong way to do it's it. It's made you millions. <laughs> Believe me, I am not who I am if I didn't go through hell and back with my family and if I didn't go through hell and back living in Iran, living in a refugee camp. There's no way in the world I am who I am today. Yeah. No way. Some of the stories I say, people don't even believe the stuff that we went through. Yeah. And so I asked, that, I asked that question because I want to know how much of it reflected off your success today and you were transparent enough to say, yes, it did. I wouldn't be the person I am today. Here's a question for you. Say David's watching this right now. Yeah. Okay? He's somewhere in Clearwater. Yeah. No one, he's got his iPhone, he's in a bathroom, he's <laughs> in his office, he's in his bed, he's by himself in his car, somewhere parked. No one knows he's watching this video. He's going to clear his history by the time he's done watching this. Yeah. But he's watching this right now. Okay? And he's seen 
the, uh, 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 the, the show, Scientology, The Aftermath, he's seen some of this. He's going to hear about it 24-7 because he, oh, yeah. he's the name. He's the face, right? Oh, no. They've created thousands and thousands of websites about us. Sure. And, <laughs> but here's the question. Say he has a moment and he says, okay, if there was anything Scientology Church could do to adjust and to positively continue its course of what they want to do, is there anything the church could do, and I know you have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, personal experience that's frustrated you. Mm -hmm. Is there anything they could do to make the church better from the internal side? On the external side, based on what you're saying, a lot of them haven't experienced it. A lot of members haven't seen it. They yeah. just kind of go to the courses. This course helped me. I found another issue I've overcome. I'm getting better. I feel better. I can't believe who I'm becoming. One day I'm going to be a great leader. I can create my own life, my own, you know, God, all this other stuff. I'm going to be an OT8. Great. Is there anything... David, who leads the entire church, could do to make Scientology an organization that's going to gain credibility and continue growing? Anything. End the abuse and end the disconnection policy. What's the disconnection policy? It's where they're separating and destroying yeah. families. It's their, it. their, their excommunication policy. So you're saying if they did those two things, Scientology would be a good organization. Maybe they're not a religion, but they'd be a good organization that they could do good for society. Well, no. I think if they ended those two policies, then it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be hurting people as much, I think, if they ended those two policies. And I also think that it would self-destruct if they ended those two policies. And, and so, so whatever you tell them, they're, still, they're not going to be able to do it because if they do it, it's no. going to self-destruct. If they didn't do, disconnect people, then people would say what happened to them, and then those people would get out of Scientology, and then it would be a fast, quick demise. But, but you right now, they're, they're, they're milking it for every second they can get and trying to keep right. the people that are in there and ordering interrogations and separating mothers and sons and daughters. And I mean, when you hear these, you watch, this after, you watch Scientology, The Aftermath on A&E, and these stories, if you can watch an episode and not cry, then you get problems. If those things change, is the content valuable enough where it's life-changing? If, if those things? If, let's just say, those two things change, is the content valuable enough where it can last? No. It's, I'm telling you, L. Ron Hubbard repurposed other stuff. But a lot of people say Tony Robbins did that. A lot of people say a lot of authors sure. today did that. A lot of people sure. say, and they've given their own, you know, because, you know, everything's written after the Bible. If you take the Bible, a lot of the principles come from Proverbs. Well, prior to that, you know, if you go back and look at Sun Tzu and what he wrote, if you go back and study Confucius, you know, if you go, so a lot of, that's been said a lot of times with yeah. every single religion and book and all that. You know, you wrote a book, your, your book copied this other book, and this financial book copied this. Well, in Scientology, you can't do Scientology part way. You're either in it or you're not. And the first policy letter that you read in Scientology is called Keeping Scientology Working. And in that policy, L. Ron Hubbard says, we'd rather have you dead than incapable. So if you do the relationship course, it leads to Xenu. If you do the communications course, it leads to Xenu. If you do the uh, how to make work easier course, it leads to Xenu. They're, all those things are all going to lead to you spending hundreds of thousands of dollars so to rid yourself of space aliens. You are full for the world is a better place without Scientology. Absolutely. Okay. So you're dead set on that. Okay. Very cool. Okay, so to wrap it up, give us a, a, you know, a, a quick a plug uh, for the book. I know you give a couple of them, and obviously yeah. uh, more of these stories are going to be probably in there. So oh, yeah. what am I going to pick up if I read the book? Um, you're going to find out all there is to know about the international headquarters, how the day-to-day -day workings are, the schedule, what we did, where we ate. 
You're gonna find a, a whole bunch of crazy stories about people that tried to escape um, and then were captured, about how I escaped with the help of the police. You're gonna find out all kinds of craziness about David Miscavige. If you know people that are in Scientology, they might even be in the book too, because we shot movies with people, we did uh, videos, films, uh, rec audio recordings, all kinds of craziness that happened at the International Headquarters. The place where I worked is called Golden Era Productions, and it was the propaganda arm of Scientology. So anything that was made to make Scientology look good, that's where we made it. That's where we did it. And the book's called Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology. Um, you can get it on Amazon. You can go to blownforgood.com. You can order it direct from there. I'll even sign a copy for you. I you thought want. it was interesting how you self-published it and ended up winning all these awards, even though it was a self-pub. Well, that's very interesting on the level of interest well, the it reason, ended up having. The reason I did that is because a girl that wrote a book told me that Scientology threatened to sue the publisher. And she actually had, was at the Imp base as well. And she wrote a book, and they threatened to sue the publisher, and the publisher had already paid her for the book, and they never published it. Wow. So I realized in order to get the book published, I had to start a publishing company. Mark, thanks for coming up, buddy. Thank Appreciate you for having you. me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.